Okay. So speaking of that, that's funny. <clears throat> because <laughs> anybody know a person or people that just say the most darndest things at the most darndest times? You know, that person that, like, you're in a social gathering or you're with your family and you hope they just keep their mouth shut. Everybody's like, yeah, uh uh-huh. Because when they talk, they generally say things that they just shouldn't say. Right? Y'all are cracking me up. Everybody's like, (laughs) Sometimes it's embarrassing things. Sometimes it's painfully honest. Sometimes it's a story that just won't end. Sometimes it's about you. And I think we all know people like that, right? Or or maybe, maybe conversely, you know somebody who when they talk, everybody just gravitates to them, right? They're just like, oh, that person is talking. I want to hear what they have to say. And no matter what they say, people just fawn over them. They're just like, oh. And like they say mean stuff and people laugh and like, they berate people, and people are like, that's so funny. Like, no, he's, in, he's saying bad stuff about you, right? Most of us kind of languish in between those two things, I hope, I think. So much of what we say on a day-to-day basis is not special. It's not of much consequence to other people, we think, or, or even ourselves. We just talk, and it don't matter a whole lot of times, right? Well, obviously... Whenever Jesus talked, it was of utmost importance. Every word that proceeded from the mouth of the one who was and is the incarnate word of God is of utmost importance. And if I'm going to be honest, in my opinion, what we're going to look at today is one of those times when Jesus just says one of the most darndest things he ever did say. And I can imagine shock and people saying, oh no. And I can imagine the disciples going, whoop, whoop, And I think <laughs> when you look at Jesus, people surely gravitated toward him. And they, some people were super attracted to what he said, even the hard things, even the harsh things. And some people just hated him, right? We're going to see that polarization today. And I think part of, I think what Jesus is saying today is a mix of embarrassing, I think it's painfully honest, and so attractive and powerful that you just can't help but gravitate toward Him if you are His disciple. But if you had heard what Jesus is going to say today in the day that He said it and you weren't His disciple, you might would have just wanted Him to keep His mouth shut. Because what we see today in the final statement of chapter 5 of Matthew is one of the most shocking and devastating things that Jesus has ever said. And I'm, I'm building that up on purpose. And that's saying a lot. So, if you would stand with me, we're going to read today's text. I don't normally do the hand motion. That was weird. That kind of felt weird. I'm like, stand with me. But we're going to read Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to finish chapter 5 today. It seems like we've been there a while, right? We're going to read verses 43 to 48. These are the very words of Jesus Christ, who is and was God in the flesh. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For He makes His sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Let's pray. God, I am overmatched here. I am not competent for this.
I fall far too short to speak on this authoritatively, but we cast ourselves, each of us, on your sufficiency this morning. And we look to the Word of God to break us down and to build us up. Holy Spirit, please intervene and do your work in all of us this morning as we look at your Word. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I'll, I'll, I'll do this. So, like I did this and now I'll do this. I'll just flap my arms. <laughs> Whew. That surely is one of the most darndest things I've ever read in my life. Darn it. So we'll start with verse 43 since it's the first one, right? You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, leading up to this point in Matthew 5, we saw the Beatitudes, we saw the, the Jesus proclamation that His disciples were the salt of the earth, the light of the world, and tells them to do their deeds, their good deeds, so that they may be seen by people doing them, so those people would glorify their Father in heaven. And then Jesus started into... Um, today will be the sixth refutation of scribal and pharisaical teaching of the law of God. And, has, and as has been the case in the previous five refutations that Jesus has given, He's addressing, hear me say it again, the pharisaical teaching, the scribal teaching, not the law of God itself. Jesus said, I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, to fill it full. And whoever teaches people to not obey the commands of the law will be considered least in the kingdom of heaven. So he starts this statement like he has started the previous five with, you have heard that it was said. He is speaking out against their mishandling of God's law, not God's law itself. And nowhere in the previous statements has that been more evident than in our text today. What is this statement that they had heard had been said? You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now let's dig in here and see what's wrong with this statement. Some of the other you have heard that it was said's were actually direct Old Testament quotations. You shall not murder. Okay? That's directly in the Word of God, but they were misapplying it. You shall not commit adultery. Again, directly in the Word of God, but they were misapplying it. You shall write your divorced wife a certificate of divorce, kind of in there. And they kind of stretched some things and put some things together. You shall not take an oath. Um, again, they kind of hobnobbed all that stuff together. But what we see today, this is just flat wrong. Okay? What has happened here is that the teachers and leaders had formed their very own natural conclusion from a sentence fragment of a portion of the law by taking something from the statement and then adding something to the statement. Let me explain what I'm talking about here. The fragment that we're talking about is found in Leviticus 19.18. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now, let me back up to Rome, uh, Matthew 5. Romans came out. It's stuck there. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Leviticus says, not that. <laughs> it just doesn't say that, right? So you see, you shall love your neighbor in there. That's in there, right? But that's not all, right? In a statement about not taking vengeance or bearing a grudge, which we talked about last week, the Israelites were told to love their neighbor. But love their neighbor how? As they love themselves. Love your neighbor as yourself. Well, that's quite an important couple of words, isn't it? It's one thing to love your neighbor. It's quite another thing to love your neighbor as you love yourself. Seems like an awfully convenient omission, don't you think? God's desire for His people was that they wouldn't avenge themselves nor hold a grudge, but that they would actually love people, people they're angry with, people who have harmed you, in the same way that you love yourself. 
whoa, as yourself. Now, I get into discussions with people sometimes. They're like, well, not everybody loves themselves. Yeah, they do. Yeah, they do. Try to stick your finger in their eye. See if they don't blink or cover up. You're hardwired to protect yourself. You're hardwired to love yourself. Whose teeth did you brush this morning? John MacArthur asked. Well, somebody's like, oh, shoot, I knew I forgot something. <laughs> Your neighbor's going, mm-hmm, you sure did. <laughs> so love your neighbor as you love yourself. And we'll talk plenty more about that later. But now, just look at what the scribes and Pharisees had changed that to. You have heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now say what? But that's obviously not in the Leviticus passage we looked at, is it? It's not even close. Well, maybe it's a quote from other Old Testament passages. And the answer is no, it's not. Nowhere. There are plenty of accounts of total destruction in the Old Testament and cries to God for vengeance, but there is no direct quotation that says God is instructing His people to hate their enemies. Nowhere. But the teachers of the law had not only omitted the as yourself, but they had gone to the opposite of loving their neighbors and drew their own conclusion, which in their mind was a logical conclusion. Love your neighbor equals hate your enemy. That's a false conclusion, but they were teaching it. It doesn't say love your enemy, so we must, since we love our neighbor, we're supposed to hate our enemy. That's what they drew that conclusion themselves. And they put it in there for themselves. They added a false conclusion. And you know what? Be careful before you jump on them. Because it's indicative of what can happen when we omit or insert when we're interpreting the Bible. Very, very easy to happen. It also happens when we figure in our wants and desires into our Bibles. I promise you, you can justify almost anything you want to do from the Bible. Wrongly, but you can justify it. And that's what they've done here. The Jewish leaders and the Jewish people wanted to hate their enemies. So they interpreted their Bible to make that not just possible, but pious. And before you say that's awful and stupid, couldn't you come to that conclusion yourself? Think about it. Should we not hate what God hates? Well, sure we should. We talked a few weeks ago about six things the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to Him. And it was talking about a lot of things. And we, we were talking about telling the truth. And in that context, He hates lying. So shouldn't we hate lies too? Absolutely we should. So couldn't that mean that God hates the enemies of His people? Be very careful here. You're going to hear me say that statement a few times this morning. Be very careful here. Let's be very clear. God hates wickedness. And the Bible actually says He hates the wicked. Don't believe me? I show you. The Lord is in His holy temple, Psalm 11, 4-7. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see. His eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but His soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. Now back up there a second. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul, the Lord's soul, hates the wicked. You say, well, God loves everybody the same. No, he does not love everybody the same. God hates the wicked. So, shouldn't we hate the wicked? Be very careful. I'm setting you up for failure here. It's very important that we keep in mind verse 7 when we think about verse 5. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold His face. Since God is righteous... God can righteously hate the wicked. Guess what you can't do? You can't righteously hate the wicked. You can't do it because you're not God. God can hate wickedness. He's holy. 
And you say, haven't we been deemed holy? We have. Stay with me. So the question I'm asking is, shouldn't we hate our enemies who naturally would be wicked if we're holy? Doesn't that sound right? Doesn't sound that far-fetched, does it? But here's the deal. God does not call us to hate anyone. Go ahead and look all through your Bible. You won't find a command anywhere to hate anyone. There are times when God calls on His people to completely wipe out a people group and He says, have no mercy on them. And that group was the enemy of the Jews. But God was using His people as a tool of judgment against these sinful people. So He would say, have no pity, and to kill every man, woman, and child. But He did not say, hate them. Seems backwards, seems hard, doesn't it? Stay with me. God could hate them... But he didn't tell his people to hate them. He said to destroy them. David says in several, several psalms that he hates the enemies of God. But listen, here's a little tricky caveat, and I'm not trying to trip you up with words. David was the head, the king of the nation of Israel. And so as such, God really being the king of Israel, God was using David to judge God's enemies, who were also David's enemies. But here's the deal too. We're not national Israel. We're not a theocracy ruled by God as a nation and not anywhere, anytime are we called to hate anyone. But the Jews taught that they're to love their neighbors and hate their enemies. And I just wanted to point that out because I could see where they could get that conclusion. It's wrong, but I understand how they could reach that conclusion. And they were teaching it. It's one thing to do something. It's another thing to teach something. So the question is, how does Jesus respond to this? Verse 44, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That's just one of the darndest things I've ever heard in my life. You have heard that it was said, love and hate. But I, Jesus, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That's a little bit different, don't you think? I think we may be all right with Jesus saying that we shouldn't hate anybody. We're good with that, right? Everybody's mommy and daddy told them not to hate anybody. We'd be all right if he said that. That'd make some sense. But that's not what he said. He didn't say don't hate them. He said that we are to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. Love them and pray for them. Now let me ask you a question. How are you doing there? Yeah, me too. Let's define a couple of words here to get some clarity about this verse here. First, let's define enemies. And this is tough. Enemies are defined as those who are hostile, hating, or opposing us. Hostile, hating, or opposing us. And I would guess that all of us, in some ways, have some enemies. Either they're directly in our face or they're forces or, or systems or people that are affecting us that, that are opposing us. I had a guy that was spitting on my windshield in high school and I thought it was one person, it was another person. I was just so controversial. I was a rebel, y'all. You don't... <laughs> but I thought it was so-and-so and somebody said, no, it's, it's this other guy, I guarantee it. He hates you. I'm like, he hates me? I mean, I never thought about this person. It wasn't an issue, but he hated me. He was my enemy and I didn't even know it. And it was him. And I didn't pray for him. I didn't love him. So enemies are those who are hostile, hating, or opposing us. So people who oppose us, people who are hostile to us. Anybody got any of those? Maybe they're in your own family. In your own home. At your workplace. I would think we all have those who we struggle with who seem to push our buttons whether they mean to or not. That's enemies. But who really are these enemies? Now, Well, Jesus is in telling us to love our enemies, is telling us to love our enemies in the context of loving your neighbor. And in so doing, He's really just pointing out the fact that our enemies are really just our neighbors. Stay with me here. 
Familiar passage, familiar story. Luke 10, 25 through 37. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test. Probably not a good idea. Saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? Now these lawyers were the ones, the scribes, the ones who were teaching these, Love your neighbor, hate your enemy. And the lawyer answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance... A priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the lawyer said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Now that's a lot to digest. And we don't have time to break it down. But Jesus is using an example here of a hated Samaritan. If you'll remember, the Samaritans were the people who didn't get deported in the Assyrian deportation. And they were Jews and they got interbred with the people who had come into the land. And they were half-breeds. And pure-blood Jews hated Samaritans. Because they weren't pure blood. They had intermingled with the nations like they weren't supposed to. Like the Jews never did that, by the way. But they hated Samaritans. So Jesus uses a hated Samaritan to show what it means to be a neighbor to somebody who is even your enemy. And make no mistake about it, Jews and Samaritans were enemies. And that's how we should act toward anyone needing help, even our enemies. Even our enemies. You go and do likewise. Who's my neighbor? You go and do likewise. But what if I don't like them? You go and do likewise. What if... He's a Samaritan. You go and you do likewise. The lawyer had asked Jesus who his neighbor is, hoping to mark off the ones that he could love as he loved himself, which is funny. He gets the whole passage, not just the fragment. He wanted to mark off who he should love and who he didn't have to love. But Jesus says, go and do the same, meaning go out and be a neighbor to those who are in need, even if it's your enemy. John MacArthur says we are to be neighbors, not figure out who is our neighbor. So the story shows us that we are to do neighboring, not tick off who we think is our neighbor. Whoever is in need, whoever we can help, that's who our neighbor is. And again, note that Jesus said the one who helped the one in need was from one of the most hated groups in the eyes of the Jews. It was a filthy Samaritan. So Jesus met one of their most pronounced prejudices head on and said basically, love, help, bless, and serve even those who you would normally in your flesh hate. So who's our enemy? Our enemy is our neighbor. And our neighbor is our enemy sometimes. And who are we supposed to love? Yes. The other word we need to define is love. What does it mean to love these people? Well, Jesus isn't saying to have warm affection for those people or to stir up positive emotions, good vibes for these people. No, the word for love here is agapate, and Strong's Dictionary defines it as to welcome, 
to entertain, to be fond of, and to love dearly. Love your enemy. Welcome them, entertain them, be fond of them, love them dearly. And the big picture here is that if you are to love someone, in this case your enemy in this way, you are to do things for them on their behalf. Welcome them, entertain them, do things for them. Like the Samaritan in the parable, he met the needs of the victim. He helped him, he blessed him, he kind of staked his own life for him. Here's some money, if you need more money, charge it to me. I'll take care of it when I come back this way. Now, I think we could do that for people we know and love. But our enemy? Those who oppose us? Welcome them. Entertain them. Do things for them. This love implies meeting needs and doing something. John MacArthur again says, this this is a love of action, not affection. You are to seek the good of your enemy. Do kind things that will help them. And Jesus furthers this thought when He adds, and pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemy, do kind things for them, and pray for those who would persecute you. Pray what? Hellfire and brimstone upon them? No, pray for their good. Pray for their salvation. Pray for their eternal life. See, we talked last week about not holding a grudge. And it's really hard to hold a grudge against somebody that you hope will get saved. Not only are you not holding on to ill thoughts, your thoughts are to be for their ultimate good. You are to love them and ask God to show His favor to them. Your enemies... Those who would persecute you. Again, I'll ask you, how are you doing? There. We could spend a lot of time here, but we've got to move on. So we can see how all this ties into Jesus' message for His disciples. Next verse is 545. This gets tricky. So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven... For He makes His Son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Now, again, let's be very careful here. Jesus has just said that we're to love our enemies and pray for our persecutors. And then verse 45 says, So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. So does this mean that we have to love our enemies and pray for our persecutors to be sons of God? Like we have to do it? To become sons? Because that's what the sentence is structured like. It's what it sounds like. The answer is no. That is not what it means. This means that when we do these things, it is proof. It is a sign that we are God's children. What if we're not doing these things? What's that a sign of? I'll let you do the math there. This means that when we do these things, it is proof that we are God's children. Wednesday night, I was walking to the restroom because I had to. And Don said to me, you walk just like your dad. He was talking about my gait, my lovely formful gait. My, My legs are short, okay? So are my dad's. But he was talking about the actual way that I walked, but I didn't learn to walk like my dad so that I could act like I'm his son. You with me? I didn't say, well, okay, if I do this, then maybe people will think that maybe that's my dad because he does the same thing. I walk like my dad because his DNA is in me and we are short folk. We're hobbitish, okay? His DNA is in me and I have watched him walk for years and years. He is part of me, and I've been close to Him for most of my life, so I walk like Him. And that walking like Him is just a sign that I'm His. My walking didn't make me His Son. And that's what's going on here. When we love our enemies and pray for our persecutors, we're just walking like our dad. 
And people point and say, that fellow there just walks like his dad. For he, our father, makes his son rise on the evil and on the good. Now, does God hate the wicked? Yes. Does the sun rise on the wicked just like it does on the just? Does the rain fall on the evil just like it does on the holy? Yes. God gives common everyday graces to everyone. Oxygen, food, clothing, shelter, friends. And God does that even for His enemies. He does that for those who hate Him. So our doing similar things shows that we are like Him. Listen, this is going to make you different than most of the world. This is going to make you different than the culture out there who loves their neighbor and hates their enemy. Sun and rain are things that evil and good, just and unjust experience because God does show some love to every person in creation. And if we are His, we will be like Him in that way. So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for He makes His sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. And now, Jesus really says some of the darndest things He's ever said in verses 46 and 47. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. Now let me just say it. This is plain, old-fashioned, blunt force trauma. When the scribes and the Pharisees and the religious Jews heard Jesus say this. Jesus bringing the wood here. After saying that His disciples are to image Him forth by showing grace and love to even their enemies, He talks of the futility of loving only those who love you and only greeting your brothers. Our love, our greetings should extend past just what's comfortable and beneficial to us. There's no reward in that, Jesus says. That's no more than other people do. But look at the two groups of people he compares this with. Tax collectors and Gentiles. Oh my word. We don't get the full force of this. But I promise you, you would not find, maybe outside of Samaritans, two more groups, two more titles that the Jewish people, especially the scribes and Pharisees, would have despised more than tax collectors and Gentiles. Tax collectors in Israel at that time would have been Jews who had sold out to Rome. And after they sold out to Rome, what they did was they extorted taxes from their brothers and countrymen. The Roman occupation was bad enough, but your own kinfolk taking money from you for the occupiers? Well, that's even worse. Anybody know about anybody that works for IRS? Owe them jokers some money, okay? <laughs> to compound it, most of the tax collectors collected more than mandated by Rome and they could keep whatever they got above and beyond what they owed Rome. So the tax might have been a shekel, and they collected six shekels and kept five for themselves. They were shady characters. They were mean. They were selfish. And they were hated. Jews, when the tax collectors, sellouts. They were hated. And Jesus says, if you only love those who love you, you ain't no better than a tax collector. And somebody in that crowd, somebody's in that crowd that day, did he just compare me to a tax collector? Did he say I was like a tax collector? Yes, he did. Anybody can love people that love them. Anybody. But that didn't all he said. He also compared or contrasted them with Gentiles. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. Well, Gentiles were those in the world who weren't Jews. To the Jewish mind, there were two groups of people in the world, Jews who were God's chosen people and Gentiles who weren't. 
It was that simple. And you see, it just so happened that Jews developed a hatred for Gentiles. Easy to do, right? They're not like us. They eat pork. All those things that we're not supposed to do, they do. They were considered unclean and they were thus detested. The Jews actually referred to Gentiles as dogs. And some of you are like, I like dogs. They did not like dogs. And here, Jesus says, if you only greet, hey there, only show common kindness and courtesy to your brothers, those of your kind, your blood, you are not any different than those dogs, the Gentiles. My goodness. The scribes and the Pharisees, and I'm sure even the disciples, must have been shocked, concerned, maybe even furious. What? You compare me to a tax collector? A Gentile dog? which just proved Jesus' point all the more. You see, God's children should show love to everyone, even their enemies. They should greet people they don't know. Some of you all are going to try to sneak out of this building today without greeting somebody. And I'm not saying you've got to hug everybody's neck, but you're hoping so-and-so doesn't catch your eye. And God's saying... You only greet people who you like and who are like you, your brothers. Anybody can do that. God's children show love to everyone. They reach out to everyone. Those who are not His, those who are not God's children, are only concerned with their own, their preferences, their comfort. And they act like the groups that they hated the most. They were acting like Gentiles. They were acting like Samaritans. They were acting like tax collectors. And then he says this, and it's no wonder that they killed Jesus. He infuriated them by pointing out their obvious flaws in their pride and their prejudices, which they were not willing to relinquish in their pursuit of comfort. In the, in the group of people who were just like them. He showed that they who were seeking to be distinct and different, they who prided themselves in being special, were just like everybody else. And he points it to me today. So what's the standard? What's the expectation for God's people then? Well, let's just say it's one of the darndest things you've ever heard in your life, and it's at least not being like everybody else. Verse five, chapter 5, verse 48. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Well, okay then. Jesus zeroes in on His disciples now and He places the bar for them and their behavior up, well, pretty high. Right? You therefore, since you aren't supposed to just be like everybody else, since you're supposed to look like your Father, our good, good Father, you must be perfect. Perfect. It's not about being like others or being a little better than them or even superior to them. But rather, you are to be perfect. Let me give you a definition of the word perfect. It means perfect. (laughs) It actually means being complete of its kind and without defect or blemish. And Jesus says His disciples must be perfect. There are those who teach that this word perfect here just means mature or complete. And that it's close. Because that means, they're saying really just means that you should be on the path. You should be maturing. You should be working toward completion. The problem with that is that Jesus says we must be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. God's not on the way. God's not becoming perfect. We are to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. 
God's not just mature. God is perfect. And we are to be like Him. We are to act like He acts, look like He looks, walk like He walks. We're to be like Him and He is perfect. And again, look at that structure. You therefore must be perfect. He's coming out of the truth that we are to love our enemies, pray for our persecutors, not be like those who love those who love them and who greet those who greet them. So therefore, you must be perfect. You must be like your Father who is perfect. You must! That's the only way you can be more righteous than the scribes and the Pharisees. Perfection is the only true righteousness. The very righteousness of God Himself. His is a perfect righteousness and you must be perfect if you are to know, follow, and represent Him in His world. Listen to me. There is one standard in God's economy and it is perfection. There will be no curve when we stand before the judge and the books are opened. Well, I try real hard to do good and I'm better than so and so and I haven't done this and I haven't done that. Not perfect. There is one standard in God's economy and it's perfection. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now I would imagine being perfect would probably make you stand out in the world, don't you think? Because I don't know anybody that's perfect. But you must be. And that's the point. You're supposed to stand out. You're supposed to be different. You're not supposed to be like everybody else. You're supposed to be perfect. So then, what's the point or the points for us? So we move to application from this amazing, one of the most darndest texts I've ever seen in my life. So our text points out some pretty weighty and pretty obvious clear expectations for us. No need for cute acronyms or alliteration this morning. We've got three application points and you could pull them out of there yourself if you wanted to. Love your enemy, pray for your persecutors, and you must be That's our application point this morning. First, love your enemies. (laughs) Sometimes the best things to make sure we remember are the things that are said the simplest. Nothing could be clearer or simpler than the three commands that we heard Jesus say today. And the first is, you are to love your enemy. Listen to me, Christian. Without a doubt or any caveat at all, you are to love your enemy. You are to be a neighbor to those in need. Whether they're from your family, from your clan, your inner circle, or among those that you would normally hate the most. Or maybe they hate you. Either way, you are to bless them. You are to help them. You are to support them. You are to go above and beyond all expectations you have for them and that they have for you. Now, this is what I want you to do in light of this application point. I want you to search your heart. I want you to search your mind. I want you to search your life and take it before God to find those pockets of hate and disdain for a person or a people group and learn what it means to love those people. Ask God to help you see who you need to learn how to love i got a real quick exercise. Hop on Facebook and see those people that push your buttons. See those people that you're furiously typing at. That's your enemy. And my question is, do you love them? I'm not saying, do you feel a fond affection for them? I'm saying, what are you doing to bless them, to encourage them, to help them, to bind up their wounds, to put yourself on the line for them 
I think we can all get high and mighty and exalt ourselves over those who are doing evil. And there are people who are doing evil. Those people whose opinions or political leanings are not the same as ours. And we feel right, we might even feel holy to hate what they stand for. To hate what they're doing and also too many times to hate them in the process. And Jesus is saying clearly and authoritatively today, love those people. You see, Jesus has spent so much of chapter 5 explaining the law to His followers, showing them how they should relate to the full scope of the law of God. And here, after detailing so much, He comes to the pinnacle of what the law is all about. It's about love. Love for everyone. Even, I would say especially, your enemy. My slides are stuck. Can you move me to Romans 13? Hey, looky there. Now they're not stuck. Stay with me though. I might need you. Paul would say it this way in Romans 13. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery... You shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. And listen, we established it earlier, your enemy is your neighbor. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. I hope in my life and in your life, Christian, that this leads us to some deep examination. Some deep soul searching before God. God, convict me of the sin of not loving my enemy. Because be clear, it is sin. Sins of omission, the things that you're not doing that you should be doing, and the sins of commission, the things that you are doing that you should not be doing. Love your enemy. Point one. Point two. Pray for your persecutors. (laughs) What a command. I have a hard enough time remembering to pray for myself and my family and you guys. And I'm supposed to be praying for my persecutors? (laughs) Really? Yes, really. Pray for your persecutors. Jesus modeled this up to the very point of His death, right? He hung on the cross and asked God to forgive His tormentors. We talked about it last week. Look at Luke 23, 33-34. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. Listen, y'all, Jesus did that. God in the flesh, holy God, did that. And he meant it. What an example. What did we sing about this morning over and over and over again? Why should I gain from His reward? I cannot give an answer. But this I know with all my heart, His wounds have paid my ransom because He interceded for me. And we read in the passage before we took the Lord's table, we were dead in our trespasses and sins when we were enemies of God. He adopted us and brought us into His family. He interceded for us. He prayed for us. His persecutors, His enemies. And you're like, well, that's Jesus. (laughs) But we are called to imitate Jesus in this way specifically. And and it's a privilege. John Stott records that John Chrysostom, an early church father, saw this responsibility to pray for our enemies as the highest summit of self-control. Indeed, Stott says, looking back over the requirements of these last two antitheses that we saw in Matthew 5, 
We trace nine ascending steps with intercession as the topmost one, he says. First, we are not to take any evil initiative ourselves. Secondly, we're not to avenge another's evil. Thirdly, we are to be quiet. And fourthly, to suffer wrongfully. Fifthly, we're to surrender to the evildoer even more than he demands. Sixthly, we're not to hate him, but step seven and eight, to love him and do him good. As our ninth duty, we are to entreat God Himself on His behalf. End of quote. We talked last week about not holding a grudge. And here we see that we can't hold a grudge because we genuinely are concerned about the welfare of those who are persecuting us. And we said last week that we should leave room for the vengeance of God. Well, God will get them. And He will. But here we have the next step in that progression as we are praying even God's wrath will be averted for our persecutor. It's one thing to step out of the way and say, well, I'll just trust God to get them. It's a whole other thing to step in and say, God, please don't. That's a hard attitude. Nobody sees you praying for your persecutor in your prayer closet, in your car, in your bed. But does your heart attitude really go to God and say, God, please spare this person your wrath? The highest form of self-control, Chrysostom said. We see it in Jesus, right? But we're not Jesus, are we? Be careful. Let me give you an example besides Jesus. We see this in flesh den. And that's in Stephen, in Acts chapter 7, verse 60. Who as he was being stoned by the Jewish authorities, did this, Acts seven sixty, And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Now let's get a picture here. I think, can't remember who it was. Nervous Piper... Somebody talked about what Stephen did here. you got to understand what stoning is. Okay, They didn't just throw rocks at people. They would push them off a cliff, usually 8 to 10 feet high. And then the first person, you know, let the first, let he without sin cast the first stone. The first stone was a big stone. It was a big giant rock. And they would throw it down on the head of the person who was being stoned. And then the rest of the people would pelt them with rocks until they died. That was stoning. Stephen is being stoned here. So he's been pushed off a cliff. He's getting rocks pelted at him after having a big stone thrown on his head. And he gets up on his knees. And he cries out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. That's not Jesus, y'all. That's Stephen. Just like me and you. But Acts 7 says that Stephen was a man who was filled with the Holy Spirit. And this is what I want to say to you. When we're filled with the Holy Spirit, that is us right there. And we will pray for our persecutors like we are commanded to do. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was martyred for his faith by Hitler's Nazis, said this... This is the supreme command. Through the medium of prayer, we go to our enemy, stand by his side, and plead for him to God. How are you doing there? I'm not doing well. Love your enemy. Pray for your persecutors. Finally, the third application point is, you must be perfect. Jesus is as clear as He can be in our text today. You must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So, based on that grading scale, what marks are you getting right now in your life? I'm a good solid A. A B plus. I could do a little better. D minus maybe. F. Based on perfection, we all fall Short. Every day. In most ways. But the command is clear. You must be perfect. Uh Uh-oh. 
Jesus has made several claims that would seem audacious in and of themselves, but this is the darndest one of them all. Put, put them with this one, and we would in and of ourselves be in big trouble. Big trouble. And that's the point. You can't do this. But I must. You can't do this. You cannot be perfect. You can't love your enemies in and of yourself. You can't pray for those who persecute you in and of yourself. But there is someone who can. No, I would say better, there is someone who did. And there is someone who does. And it is Jesus Himself. Jesus is perfect. Jesus loved His enemies, loves His enemies. Jesus prayed for, prays for His persecutors. And now, please listen to me, He offers His life to us so that we might do the same, so that we might be the same. One last John MacArthur quote. A Christian is not one who keeps the Sermon on the Mount. A Christian is one who knows that he cannot. I'm not asking you to tie your shoes a little tighter, run a little faster, jump a little higher, do a little better. I'm asking you to see your utter and complete helplessness. I'm asking you to know that you were dead in your transgressions. And God made you alive. Or maybe you are dead in your transgressions. I dare you to try to love your enemies. I dare you to try to pray for your persecutors. I dare you, sinner, to try to be perfect. You will fail. I dare you, Christian, to try to do this in your own strength. You will fail. And that's the point. The point is to push us back up on the perfect one. And this is all summed up beautifully. We'll finish here in Romans 5, verses 6 through 10. Well, that's what we've sung about. It's what we've talked about. This is where we finish today. And it is one of the most darndest things I've ever read in my life. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person. One would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more, much more, Now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life? More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. It's one of the most darndest things I've ever heard in my life. Let's pray. Once your enemy, now seated at your table. Jesus, thank you. Father, if there be one or some here this morning who are your enemies, by the power of your Holy Spirit, convict them of their sins. Show them their need for a Savior and show them Jesus as that perfect Savior. Not just a guy back in history who did some nice things, but very God, a very God who entered into time and lived a perfect life and took the sins of His people upon Himself to bear your punishment upon His body for those sins. A substitute who did what we could not do and now does what we cannot do. Show them their need for that Savior. Show them Jesus as that Savior. And may they cry out to you for grace and new life. Holy Spirit, you do that work. 
And for those of us who do know you, by your grace, God, help us to love our enemies by the very same Spirit who empowered Jesus to do it. Help us to pray for our persecutors through the very same Spirit. And God, help us to see the perfection that is His. And may we throw ourselves upon it time and time and time again when we fall short, as we fall short, as we stumble, as we sin. May we see the perfection of Jesus Christ as sufficient. Our sins, they are many. And His mercy is more. We praise you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and receive a benediction? And what a benediction it is. Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You're dismissed. Stay and eat with us if you can.